0: It's not always right to be right, but I could be wrong. And we'll talk about that on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. This episode is brought to you by Funwise Capital. Funwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one sided deals. Connect with Funwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. If you did hear me correctly. I could say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan They can help you get funding, get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an a rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com mindog. That's apply.funwise.com slash mindog. Get money for your business now fly.funwise.com slash MindDog
1: Is everybody ready for the Mind Come on, give us a show!
0: And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here. Just occurred to me that intro might lead people to think that I'm a uh, maniac, a, a psycho, or something. Uh, it's just a lot of fun and high energy, and it kind of gets my uh, energy level up at the beginning of the show. But I know it does, <laughs> it does seem kind of crazy. Uh, today, we're going to be talking uh, to a business leader, and we're going to be talking about uh, why uh, being right. Uh, all the time is not necessarily, uh, a healthy thing, uh, for people. You know, I, I've been kind of touching on this subject for a while and I'm not sure if we're even going to go where I've been, uh, talking about it, but the idea, uh, that being wrong is a, or being able to admit that you're wrong is, is a, a difficult thing for a lot of people in the world, uh, today. Uh, and so being right, uh, is not always right <laughs> not it's not always right to be right uh is it's is an idea that it, it sounds intriguing and maybe i'm uh misreading it we're gonna find out in just a moment uh the big news of the day is facebook is changing its name to meta so i just noticed in my ad there uh, they got a five-star rating with google facebook and uh trust gonna have to change all the ads to say meta now and you know, no big deal, really. Changing ads and stuff, but I think it's a gamble. A company as big as Facebook is—I don't recall any company with that kind of like that kind of just big bucks behind it, uh, invested in it. For all its investors to take a gamble on rebranding at this point is, I think, unprecedented. And I might be wrong about that, but there's always a bit of risk when you when you're doing that. And I get the idea. The idea is generally, and I've been saying this for a while, uh, get rid of the boomers. <laughs> uh, see, social media works this way. And this is my theory, but I think it's 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 a well-grounded theory that has a lot of evidence to support it, is that uh, young people uh, create these social media platforms and the young people, younger people, gravitate to them. And then as soon as the boomers find out about it, the young people start to move on and they need to develop new uh fresh new uh platforms where the boomers aren't allowed. It's like constantly trying to get away from mom and dad. And I think that's what happened. We saw MySpace and then old people like me got on MySpace and then they needed Facebook and then the young people needed Facebook and then the old people found their way to Facebook and the young people needed Twitter or TikTok or Instagram or whatever is the latest thing. And I think there's just this battle to stay young. And Facebook definitely seems like a boomer wasteland to me. Uh, So that's my take on that. I'm just curious about what your take on the whole rebranding of Facebook is. Love to hear your thoughts on that. As mentioned, we're going to talk about leadership in uh, in a book that's uh, out now called It's Not Always Right to Be Right uh, and Other Hard-Won Leadership Lessons. Man, maybe if I could get the lips to work right. My guest is uh, uh, Hamish Thompson. Hamish Thompson, a new Englander from birth. Hamish is a a seasoned global leadership executive in a 30-year career. He has been successful CEO, regional president, and global brand head for Mars Incorporated, UK and Chicago, or UK, Australia, and Chicago, a senior marketing and sales lead for Reebok International, England and the Netherlands, and a fresh-faced account executive in London, advertising scene. Uh, Board of uh, board director, leadership author, and keynote speaker, startup advisor, and consultant. He currently resides in Sydney, Australia, with his wife and three children. It's Not Always Right to Be Right is an autobiographical account of uh, business and personal insight from 30 years of corporate experience. Also, included his commentary and critique from 17 leading international business experts. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Hamish Thompson to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Hamish, welcome.
2: Hey, nice to be with you, Matt. And uh, hey, the, uh, the Facebook one is fascinating. I'm actually in agreement with you. One of the things I always tell my chief marketing officers, principle number one within marketing, do no harm. And we know Facebook, distinctive brand assets, they're worth their weight in gold. You imagine right. how much effort has been put into that recognisable values and then potentially you go and actually change that. So I see the concept Um, I think it's an incredibly gutsy move. But then again, you know, these are gutsy people. So let's hope they get it right.
0: Right. Well, it's gutsy, but it's also a little bit part of it really has me baffled by they chose the name Meta, which uh, naturally leads to data. And since they've had so much uh, controversy about data control, (laughs) I just think that's a really uh, it it makes the gamble even more significant. Uh, So it's just a questionable thing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
2: No, I listen i I agree entirely, and uh I like your sort of uh your thought around this. When you start out, you start out underground, but then you go overground. and as soon as you go overground and you think around the number of brands within that, it's no longer cool. To be, to be overground within that. And you think around the fashion element. And I always remember back into my Reebok days, Matt, uh, I was uh, the one adage that used to go around Coco Chanel, fashion is made to go out of fashion. And right. it's incredibly hard. And from a perspective of an entrepreneur, when you get to go overground, it's often the best time to sell before you actually start to go under as well.
0: Interesting. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with that. And it, it becoming... Uh, you know, as as the years go by in my generation, it was, you know, it it seemed that you had a longer lifespan of uh when of where your coolness factor started to wear off once you be once you got overground. Uh, I think today that that span has gotten shorter and it continues to get uh, shorter with every new generation. I think that's where we're we're at now. While we see like TikTok comes along and they're already waiting for the next. The big shoe to drop in social media and all that stuff. So it's it's hard to keep up. And so, as an entrepreneur, how do you even um, how do you make plans for the future when things change that quickly?
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's a uh, there's not a set answer on it. So I, I think from a branding side, I was always classically trained that brands can be generationally relevant as long as you continuously update them. Um, but there are numerous models and examples where you need to offer something fresh, something new, something innovative. Um, The element is how do you do it at the same time? You don't lose your main penetration base, but equally you start to get a little bit of an edge. Best way I reckon of doing this is taking probably 30% of your business and having a trial, a learn process to try and actually develop that. And if the world falls over on it, your business is not going to fall over at the same time. So getting that balance between being aggressive, trying something new, and equally getting your brands to evolve, I think that's the hard part from it. But let's face it, there's quite a clever cookie, so uh, I'd value him ahead of myself.
0: Uh, uh yeah no i i get it man and and but sometimes it, it's usually less drastic than a full company rebrand like it's a new product line that we're going to introduce or something like that it's or, or uh, you know uh rebranding of a product line within the company but that whole global rebranding is uh, i would think if i had on stock and facebook i'd be a little nervous tonight <laughs> <laughs> anyway let's move on to your book because uh I'm not sure if I'm interpreting the title right. I think I probably am. I mean, it seems simple enough, even though it seems at odds with uh, the way people behave. It's not always right to be right. What exactly do you mean by that phrase?
2: Hey, listen, uh, we get told this in personal life as much as we do within business. And it's um. so I, I think it's very true within its own sense. But let me tell you how I experienced it to begin with. And I've been doing sort of a you know, 30-year corporate career And I think like most aspiring and starting out leaders, you think that business success is about being right. So every single discussion, debate, dialogue you have, you want to get in there. And you always think being a competitive and a driven person, there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And I actually really liked intellectual sparring. It was really good in everything you get within that, even your other directors at a leadership level. It's good fun and everything, but you always want it to come out on top. And the danger of that is it's it's incredibly limiting. You look at transactions as one-off wins only. You don't think around longer-term partnerships. If there's no mutual outcome and an enduring outcome, stage two and three of a partnership is actually really limited. And you'd know through all the people you talk to relationships and depth and quality and trust of relationship is what actually drives to breakthrough and transformation. And the amount of time within my career, I've seen amazing functional, technical brilliance, these innovations and ideas that just blow my mind completely. Yet, when they don't have relationships, and they think they can go it alone, and they think that they're right, and everyone else is wrong, it fails miserably. So the best leaders to me, You say you got it wrong, you concede, you change direction where necessary, but importantly, don't always insist on being right. Nobody likes you uh, after that, and it's uh, pretty restrictive. Your partners tell me that the whole time.
0: Right. I think it has applications far beyond business. I think uh, in the world today, especially what we see in the political discourse of the world, we see far too much of these uh, people they stop listening stop having any intent on learning anything new just convince it uh this is the position i'm going to fight for and i must win now it, i think um of obviously it's important in business but it's it's curious to me where that comes from and i'm going to propose this this idea that it comes from fear based of if i'm exposed as being wrong about something my value as a person or value as an asset to the company uh is down so you, it's kind of a perception thing i don't want to be perceived as the guy who was wrong about something rather than uh I do want to be perceived as the guy who was open to new ideas and the guy who was always listening and always had a uh, attitude of uh, continued learning and improvement, which I think, uh, you know, a, CEO would be more impressed with that guy who has a reputation of, of always being a voracious learner and always being open to learning than this guy who's got his his you know boots on the ground stuck in the sand. I'm convinced that my way is the only way and the right way. But we have this a fear that if if I'm exposed as being wrong about something, it diminishes my value. Uh, do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, wholeheartedly. Um, there's a concept that I talk around and a lot of people go into it called the imposter syndrome. And it is, it's a lack of inner confidence within that. The very best leaders have the confidence to know that ideas outside of their own are actually better. And when they hear those ideas, as you say, they're not already always listening. They haven't closed off. Your mind works like a parachute best when open. And they're actually thinking and they enjoy when an idea comes along, a concept, a perspective that is different they actually get excited around it, it and they build off that and drive it. So I think it is a uh, it's a lack of confidence for a lot of people. The interesting thing, though, Matt, is that senior leaders, the very top of the leaders, are often the worst offenders.
0: Yeah, and, I know that's why. That's I an interesting
2: part on that because you look at them and you think there's not a confidence issue on that, but I think the problem is a lot of people when they've been successful on being right. It's incredibly hard to change, and it's exactly like a great culture within a company. Great companies that have exceptional cultures. There's a curse to a good culture. It's incredibly hard to evolve. So I think it is that uh, it's almost that balancing act you have to get right. And just quickly, the the other one that really annoys and frustrates me as a leader when people insist on being right. Nobody challenges that leader anymore because why would you? You're put in a new idea, et cetera, and you know you're going to lose. So what happens is they become resigned to not putting a new perspective. And the development and unlocking of potential within others is what a leader should do. And the amount of times that happens. So that frustrates the hell out of me. Um, But it's not always aspiring leaders. It's some of the top ones who do it as well.
0: No, I I, I completely agree. And I've lived it in big companies corporations and i lived it in a small company and i think it can be a cancer because what happens is you stifle this uh the the uh perception that the people who are running the company the company the people who are making the things happen within the company the, the workers uh don't feel like they're important enough they don't feel like they're being listened to and there's no reason to listen to them and then it becomes disgruntled and then you get this uh poison chain of everybody bitching about what's wrong with the company and it you can see it falls apart and still You can go to a CEO who doesn't recognize that and still saying we're going to do things the way we've always done things and, and, you know, barrel into this rigid idea, not not noticing that. He's really creating a cancer within his own company. I say he because I, I better say she, he or she because mm-hmm. I don't want to get in any trouble here. But that uh, that idea of uh, when you stop listening or give people an, uh, the perception that their ideas don't matter and they're not being heard, that is the worst thing a company can possibly do for morale and for... Spirit and all that kind of all the rah-rah stuff that we talk about,
2: right? Yeah, I agree entirely. And I I like this concept of uh, good leaders, but I think all all good people are insatiably curious. And if I think around it, I've probably get more learning and new perspective from young graduates, from young starters, from apprentices, etc., within factories or field force than I do from my own direct leadership team. And that's not because my leadership team are not great at all over the years, they're exceptional, but they think like me. I've recruited them trying to get diversity in regard to the way they sort of look and sort of age, et cetera, and ethnicity and gender. But generally, you've got a bias, you get people to think like you. So when you get new people coming into your organization, you don't want that cancer of closed ideas. You want to bring that out and you want fresh challenge. Don't get into prove mode as a new starter. Input, challenge early, give your perspective because that's exactly what people want. And I'm never a supporter of these young graduates who come into big corporations and they're told, just sit back and you're here to learn and develop. It's the most engaging opportunity Not only for a new person starting a business, but for the leader to suddenly be exposed. And this is where I love these millennium boards and things. These young kids and uh, crew with different perspectives, different fields of life coming in and saying, that strategy is pretty crap, actually. Um, My God, is that your communication style? Geez, you're not going to be getting into the new users of today. Your Mindspace Facebook analogy is, uh, is a good example.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, can that be all overdone though and, and I say this as a, a grumpy old man who uh, had a young protege come to a company that I was running for a, a period of time and he was inquisitive and challenging things which is good to have but uh, it, it, the constant uh, nature of his questioning, uh, systems and stuff. And how ha- always having to justify why we do things the way we do to this person w- got on my nerves pretty quickly. And there was one point where I, I stopped him and I told him, and I, I think he might be listening tonight and he'll laugh at this. Well, I said, you better shut the F up. before you- right, I send your ass back to Florida. In a hurry. Uh, <laughs> uh, basically I, I, it just wore on my nose. So can that, uh, questioning of, um, uh, principles and, and policies and all that kind of stuff, uh, can that be overdone in your view?
2: Listen, I'm sure it can be. So I'll, I'll give you the example of Pixar in um, regard the animation film company. They've had from day one a culture and environment of challenge, of question, et cetera. Um, you look a lot of the, the Israeli sort of startups, even from defense uh, forces as well. It is that openness, challenge, opinions, everyone's opinions count, egalitarian approach. So I think you can get a balance within it. And what I'd say to that is probably your you know, your direct message into that individual is don't stop giving your opinions, but know when to give them, know when to challenge. And if you're saying to someone, hey, 20%, 30% of your time, I want you to really dig in and challenge, give us new perspectives, providing it's positive. I don't like any of this negative, and we'll talk around drains and radiators later. Um, that's going to work. But the other 70%, hey, get your head down, (laughs) nail your core job and everything. So good people, I think, will actually be able to uh, coach that with another's. It would drive you crazy too much
0: funny i i I'm just thinking about how i was that young guy at one point there was a i went to work for a corporation which there's a, a long story that i won't uh bore our listeners with here it's not really a boring story <laughs> but i actually hired myself for for a corporation and people will hear that and say i want to hear that story now but it's too long a story but i hired myself but i got ahead very quickly it was almost like the book uh, how to succeed in business without really trying i got ahead in in business by being this very um objectionable guy and basically uh came in with a huge chip on my shoulder that i knew things that and and for maybe i got lucky that i i could back it up in some terms but and this and the people who were in authority looked at me like a little bit intimidated like wow this guy's a ball of fire here but i rose through the ranks pretty quickly and got promotion promoted to junior vice president from a guy who walked in off the street really literally hired myself nobody even was involved in it i walked down at a desk and sat there and started doing the work until somebody said who is this guy <laughs> i didn't myself but my point here i barreled through the company by having this objectionable attitude and uh the attitude that they're doing it all wrong and i'm here to rock their world and kind of uh so that, that could, only took me so far, though, and to into the one point where I, I got, eventually got high enough to the point where I'm locking horns with somebody who'd seen that act a hundred times before in their life and said, you know what, uh, we're going to challenge everything. We'll take your advice, but we're going to challenge everything. And so things slowed down at that point. Uh, yeah. But it, <laughs> it, it, it can be something that young people come into a company with too full of fire to change. Uh, yeah, I, th-
2: I think you're right. It's a it's a balance that's actually needed. I um I have this concept of got within the book about called drains and radiators. And essentially they're exactly what they say. And we have this in personal life as well. We all know drains are people that are negative, they're pessimistic, suck the lifeblood out of opportunity, they have limiting beliefs. And as a leader it's uh, it's bloody dangerous to have those people around you, but even worse, it infects and it goes right across the organisation. And then a radiator does exactly the opposite. They're positive, they're possibility, um, they infect a can-do attitude and they're action-oriented and driven within that. When you challenge... But that doesn't mean a radiator has to be a Pollyanna, right? I agree on everything. When you challenge... And offer new ideas and perspective, as long as you're doing it with a benefit in mind, and this could be the possibility of where we go to the next stage, putting good vision and you know, strategic sort of process in place, it's actually really value add. When people challenge on a negative basis and everything's so hard and we've done this and it's limiting thoughts, that's dangerous. And I think to your point around unless you develop relationships along the way. If you challenge without developing that trust and likability as well in many ways, um, no, people have enough of you. Life's too bloody hard to have too many drains and, and yeah. negative people or uh, negative people around you. So it is a balance. But the older you get, the more experienced. I think you know when to play that and when to not. I would have loved to know that in my 20s because I was like you. I would... Uh, I'd go on the front foot and uh, I've got a fair few grillings over the years, which uh, you Mm -hmm. learn from, but uh, it can be demanding.
0: I said I said that to somebody just yesterday a young guy who uh, was calling us all calling everybody uh, on social media fools and I said it it's really a wonderful thing to be so young and know everything and be so certain that you know everything I said I remember being that person once but uh, uh maybe it's not maybe good is not the word I'm looking for maybe foolish is the word I for, but it it's, it's an easy trap to fall into um but you've mentioned relationships a couple of times now and i think it's important but here's the thing now uh in cultivating a culture and a team that is going to be uh radiators and you and you want that in, in your your uh company and you and in your life um can that be can people be indoctrinated into being radiators, i'm that's probably a bad word indoctrinated but uh it's the hiring process and so you don't never really know the person because hr and people who are bringing people into your world are they have some pressure to get a hire done get the most qualified person in there they're not always getting to know the person and attitude uh which would be really helpful if you could just hire people who are automatically radi- radiators when they come in but you don't know that so can it be taught, can it be, um, uh, spread in some way and, and kind of, uh, again, indoctr- I don't want to use that word indoctrinated. Can you bring people into the culture, into that sort of culture, uh, who aren't necessarily that way and change them?
2: Listen, I, uh, I know exactly what you mean. It's interesting about Facebook. Um, went to the HQ office one time within uh, the London uh, branch and, My old man used to say to me, the easiest person to sell to is a salesman. And I saw this motivational poster in there and it said, don't confuse motion for impact. And I got sold on that immediately. But what Facebook actually does within their hiring process, and I'll follow this for a few years, you interview questions around can people actually do impact impact. And do they just talk the fluff or do they actually do tangible results and get action action oriented or results oriented? So you can uh, you can test for that. Is it hard to test for um, radiators? Yeah, it is, uh, it is hard, isn't it? It's pretty much a, a, a bluff aspect that you can get away with. I've uh, followed this concept called C plus W is greater than E, Um and C is curiosity, and W is willingness, and I slash willingness with passion is greater than experience. I've also written a chapter on experience, so I've got to be careful I don't underplay experience. But when hiring people, look at are they curious and socially curious? Do they have a lot of perspective and insight from a different adjacencies, well-read, etc.? And uh, your listeners appreciate, obviously, people you interview with massive perspective and different thought process. But equally, have they got the willingness and passion to learn and do things differently? And if they have, often that can overcome a lack of technical experience. So I think there is a way to try and help that within recruitment. Some people are always going to be drains. It's as simple as that. And when you get them in there, um, my experience, and I've made probably four mistakes along the way, I've been too slow to remove people from the business because they have been negative. And the reason I've done that, which is very similar for a lot of leaders, they were technically unbelievably good. Right. So econometrics in regard to marketing, supply chain excellence in regard to Six Sigma, you know, lean within manufacturing. Um, some of the cleverest cookies in the world, but because they didn't integrate and connect with people. They never took the business forward. And I probably waited on three or four examples that I've had on the, within my career where I should have moved a lot earlier. So you'll find out quick enough when people are there what they really like. And my encouragement is ahead of engagement surveys, processes, motivational posters around the world, do your best to get those radiators in and remove the bloody drains as soon as you can. It's not saying the drain's wrong, it's just that it's not right for your business
0: culture. Gotcha. And, but uh, part of the, the uh, challenge here, and I'm not sure that it necessarily equates to Australia, but I imagine it probably does. You have business leaders here who, uh, because things have been made really difficult, it's not like the old days where you could fire somebody. I mean, it's an HR process, and now you, you got everybody required to, do rights, employee ben- uh, uh, rights, and, and all this kind of stuff that makes senior executives really shy about making any moves like that. And I can tell you that I've been hired a couple of times as a uh, mid-level executive just because they knew that I would not be shy about firing people, but still they they were really cautious that it's got to be done in the right way and all this kind of stuff. So that's why it's really important to... to not get a bad hire that you're going to have to fire eventually anyway. But I hear your point. I, you know, it's waiting too long to get rid of uh, the cancer it, to excise the cancer within your company is, is really detrimental to your own company's health. I get that, but you know, yeah,
2: yeah. The, no, I, I agree entirely. In that the legal process it's building up this side of the world, but. You know, I've uh, spent more than uh, enough time within the US to know the legislation and things, and it, it is. It's becoming increasingly harder within that domain. So the recruitment is key. But also I think if uh, if you get your company culture to be known in regard to the external world, very seldom are you going to get drains putting their hand up to want, to want to enter that. They'll know immediately, gee, this is not really me, and also the world's small enough now that most people who join, other people know them. You get a bit of an honest assessment within that. And I think you get a, uh, a gut intuition, and this is that inner confidence you were talking earlier, around who really is that positive go-ahead go, go ahead person and the can-do sort of attitude. Right. Um, but I, th- I think the danger is when I talk around the concept of being a radiator, a lot of people think that that doesn't mean you challenge or provoke You want a hard-nosed CFO finance lead who's going to be challenging, et cetera, but challenging always with wanting to aspire to the next opportunity
0: problem with every word is people can uh, put their own meaning on what you mean by that and so uh, somebody can hear the radiator and think of Pollyanna we just want somebody who's going to come in and be smiling and 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 not admit there's a problem when there is a problem and that's that's just as bad as somebody who's complaining about a problem when there is no problem they're both uh, (laughs) detrimental uh and but you mentioned culture and here's a and you're you say thirty years of success uh, uh, in in uh, your career? Uh, you look too young to have thirty years in anything. I mean, I, I would guess you're probably in your thirties if I were just to look at you. But uh, this idea of culture, I went in uh, as a marketing director for a company I worked for less than ten years ago. Uh, the first day uh, there. Uh, I realized that there was a culture issue in there because I, I was exposed to a lot of new people as you will usually are on your first day. And every single one of them tried to poison me about, uh, my expectations of success in the company and um, what the company was all about. And I got lots of complaints about this company doesn't care about its people, doesn't care about success and blah, 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 blah. They're just greedy and all. And from every single person I talked to, I went to the CEO who was my age. So I'm 62 now. This was when I was uh, maybe 55, 54, and he was my age. And I said to him, you have a culture problem here. This is like two days on, on my second day, and he looked at me like I had four heads. Like, what? What do you mean? I said, culture problem. There is a culture within your your company, and the culture is problem oriented. Everybody here can identify problems. Not a single person here has a solution. They've they've had that beaten out of them in their culture. So uh, the question really is, can a culture be changed when when especially when it's that far gone? Where you have this is a small company, fifty employees and basically the entire workforce was infected with this uh, culture of being problem finders, not solution finders. Uh, can that be addressed and changed in your view?
1: Yeah, um,
2: listen, as I said before, um, a great culture has a curse. Um, it's very difficult to evolve. So even the best cultures need to evolve over time. Um, listen, my my own personal view, um, very, very difficult, unless you almost impossible, unless your leadership, founders, owners, leadership C-suite group, really passionately believe in regard to the culture and the cultural dimensions. So the fact is, we all know, you think around at the moment, we talk back about legislation, all the issues that are happening within the financial community, the banking world, the loans, the sexual innuendos, the bullying, harassment claims, they happen everywhere. Right. Every time you look at those, the issue always comes back to culture. So there's federal reviews, et cetera, always comes back to culture. So it is incredibly difficult uh, to change. But the good news is around culture is as a leadership group, you can define what your culture to look like but the problem is very few companies and I'm a <coughs> excuse me I'm a firm believer on a concept called strategy on a page you may have 50 slides behind you but the simplest thing for all your associates and employees is one strategy what's our vision what's our mission what's our goals financial non-financial strategic drivers enablers and behaviors that's it everyone gets behind it So many times when I look at leading groups, their strategies on a page, there's not one reference in regard to culture or culture dimensions, what do they want to stand to. So people talk around it, you've got to actually bring it alive. And the other thing that I'd say the good news around culture at the moment, which is different from my sort of earlier years, it used to be a bit of all fluff. And you'd say hey i want to be the most innovative creative company or i want to have a very empathetic uh, or intellectual intelligence sort of angle or customer centricity at the heart of everything we do very few of that used to be measurable the difference is now you've got cultural companies that have got econometric modelers behavioral scientists you do a company refit you have got a very cool background within uh, within your setting there matt you change that and you're instantly able to measure what is the impact of that creative environment around you. So culture is now actually measurable, and I know within my experience, I demanded within all my leadership teams, you measure cultural dimensions exactly the same rigor, discipline as you do with a revenue and earnings or a cash target, and that's different from, uh, you know, that's completely different sort of mindset. So I've uh, underplayed culture many times within my career because I just thought, hey, Reebok, amazing culture. And you don't as much. So um, it's a a key lesson I reckon we can learn.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to lower the bandwidth for a second here because it looks like uh, we're we're having a little bit of lag. Uh, Just hold on one second here. Um, Down to 720. Let's see if that's any better. Yeah, it seems better. Can you hear me okay? Nope, you're locked up. Yeah. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you now. Okay, good. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, we were having a little bit of bandwidth troubles, which is not to be unexpected. We're talking all, all the way around the globe, or uh, for you flat-earth people, we're talking all the way across the globe, <laughs> of course, across the disk. You uh, <laughs> um, uh, talked about mission statements. I think a lot of companies get... Uh, I I, especially having the varied career that I have, a lot of uh, companies get uh, caught up in reciting mission statements as as and mistake that for the culture and and the purpose and don't really think about it anymore. It becomes just a mantra that they don't really think about the purpose and and and. direction of the company and it's just words we say at some point it's a poster in the hr room that we see all the time with a mission statement on it, but it really becomes meaningless if you don't really kind of put some thought behind it right um
2: yeah i think so and you, you need to actually articulate it and you need to act as a leader your behaviors have to actually demonstrate it but also you've got to reward behaviors and when people go against your cultural norms if you accept it particularly if you accept it from your senior leadership team, uh, you just send the wrong message entirely. So unfortunately, um, for those who go against cultural norms or cultural dimensions, I think there has to be pretty stern consequences because it sends the right message. But equally, those who demonstrate it, reward, recognise, promote them uh, in its entirety. I like um, the, the mission statements that if they are... Malarkey and a bit of fluff and everything—they're um, almost just a waste within that because people get so sick and tired of hearing it, but there's right. no substance to actually uh, back that up. So it can be very dangerous.
0: Yeah, and yeah, you can ask uh, people within a company what what really is, is your. Uh, uh principle in in your guiding light here and basically they, you know they really are clueless about that if they can recite the uh mission statement but not really tell you what it means then it's worthless and yeah, you know, i think we get caught up in a, a lot of that kind of stuff now as far as um um the, the idea of um basically personal responsibility with within this thing and again coming back to the title i'm going to show the book one more time it's uh not always uh right not always right to be right i think uh, words have power and meaning and so we kind of think if i'm not right i'm wrong but that's not always the case so i ask, uh, and, and i put this out there with, with the expected response that most people would make a joke of it or take it lightly but uh trying to open people's minds to the idea have you ever been wrong and a lot of, you know, on social media, like like a poll. And out of 5,000 followers, I got like six responses and all of them were jokes. Yeah, my wife says I'm wrong all the time, that kind of stuff. But I think people are, are reluctant to uh, look at this idea that I could have been wrong. I've been wrong before and maybe maybe i could be wrong now and stop losing uh, and they lose sight of the fact that uh i we're all you know fallible and we all can make mistakes Uh, and so not to dig into too too tightly to this idea but the idea of being wrong scares people uh and so i just want to talk about that perception is the opposite of, of not not being right that 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 doesn't necessarily equate to you being wrong uh wrong as or uh the bad guy (laughs) right hey um
2: this last weekend within the u.s and it was uh washington dc so i'm it's almost like calling you a bostonian when you're from new york within that so i'm a new zealander not an australian but i live in australia but uh there's a, the All Blacks, who's our New Zealand rugby team, played within uh, Washington against the US uh, team this last weekend. Um, I won't tell you the score. It was quite dominant on the, on our side. It's about the only sport <laughs> we're, uh, we're very good at. Um, but the old uh, coach of the New Zealand team, uh, Sir Steve Hansen, he has a quote that says, you don't need to lose to learn, but it sure helps. And it is so true. The biggest learning experiences are when you get things wrong, when you make mistakes. And the reason being that there's a negativity bias. We all know there's research and psychological studies done on that. When things go against us, we look more deeper, we analyse, we scrutinise, we look for insights more than when things go well. And it's just the nature of it. It's understandable. But I'm a massive believer in embracing failures Because if you embrace a failure and you feel comfortable to admit that I'm wrong, I've made the mistake, as long as you learn insights from that, you know you're going to be better. And over time, and even your earlier discussion around challenging, et cetera, but it got to a stage where it wasn't going to work because you didn't have the relationship, that's an amazing insight. So when you have great ideas and initiatives, you know that's not enough to be a catalyst for change. You have to have that relationship. So every single mistake, issue, problem, failure that you've had, generally you can learn so much from that. And again, I think it's an inner confidence uh, angle. But I actually look for red scorecards now as opposed to green scorecards. Because when there's red, there's an issue. And I think, gee, okay, what can we do better? And I have a chapter within the book called Constant Dissatisfaction. And it's just the nature of me. Even if things are going incredibly well, I'm on to the next thing. I'm wanting to do something new, different. Um, I never accept the status quo, even if it's a good one. Now, that can be a bloody demanding leader for others within your team. But I like when things go wrong because you learn from it
0: well uh you know i've said many times and i'm like a broken record on this program with with this idea that i stopped believing in coincidence now this is my third program today and uh the imposter syndrome has come up on both the previous programs today and this idea of uh i I express of being plagued with dissatisfaction that you're always looking uh for you know to do to do better and do more no matter how good your work is to be uh, and I got that from Bob Ross, the painter, is it may you be always be plagued with this satisfaction because it, it will keep you creative and keep you going forward. So I don't think it's a coincidence that these things are coming up again in, in this program, even though the subject is really unrelated to both of those subjects uh, uh i feel like and i don't know uh if you're a spiritual man but I, sometimes i feel like the universe is, is like pounding these messages into my head uh, for a reason like there's no coincidence behind this this is meant to happen you just need to listen a little harder and accept it and the, why we're we giving it to you three times in one day
2: <laughs> <laughs> somebody's sending you a message
0: yeah so now what you've done with this book I think it is a really powerful. Uh, there's a really powerful lesson in how you put the book together uh, for young people who, uh, or, or people at any age really. It's the idea of uh, interviewing, talking to experts, talking to people who who created some success, and really getting into their mindset. But uh, from doing this program, I know that can be a challenge. So talk to me about uh, because the 17 people you uh interviewed for this book or collaborated with collaborated uh, with on this book um they probably weren't always analytical about their success, like sitting back and thinking about it and and having a real analytical, analytical approach to how did I do this? How did I get where I get? It's more about uh, those systems, become those ideas and principles become ingrained in you. So you do things by rote without thinking about it so much. So how did you, uh, what was your approach to get digging deep and getting people to kind of be introspective about their uh, ideas and principles of, on leadership.
2: Yeah, I think it's um, the the reason I got them in the first place is I've read probably you know probably similar to most you know I've picked up from maybe a thousand leadership books over the years, and uh, my attention span is is very weak. It's uh it's not a uh, it's not a great sort of behavioral trait as a leader. Um, so I get bored very easily. Majority of books that I pick up, I put down within three chapters. And the reason being, there's a lot of theory, but I don't actually see a lot of practicality or diversity in regard to thought. And some are exceptional books, so I'm uh, I'm, uh, not doubting that. But what I importantly like doing, my views and my perspectives, I think they're right but I'm not convinced they are. And I like getting this different diversity and perspective. So these 17 people, I've got diplomats, I've got head general counsels, I've got CEOs of global companies, et cetera. And each of them will give a perspective and a challenge on my particular concept. And I like that because I reckon over the years, some of these things I believe in at the moment will probably change. And I'll be open to that actually change itself. And each of the ones that I've chosen I, 90%, I knew them in regard to past experiences, interactions, some only fleetingly, but I knew they were actually challenges and were confident within their abilities and their perspectives to put things across. Um, And I actually just like that. I think uh, I'm not a fan of people who automatically think that their views on the world are 100% black and white, and if someone's got a different view, their view must be wrong. So I think it does actually add value, and I must have had a few of them on that. Um, you know, I've uh, I've really sort of looked at sort of circumspect and stepped back and think, gee, okay, I hadn't I hadn't really appreciated that side as well. Um, so I enjoyed that facet from it and I think it is beneficial as well just a, an entirely different perspective
0: I, I think if the entire world had that attitude we'd be a, it might be a much better world a much more civil world I think uh, that is becoming more and more the uh, exclusion than than the rule exception than the rule uh, we we'd see people who and especially, and I don't want to go get into a whole political thing, but in politics in general, you will see people on either side just adopting a position because they know it's counter to the other side, because if they believe that, it must be wrong. So I am without giving any thought about why you're taking the position you're taking, just taking it because that guy took the other one. <laughs>
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean. There's a there's a concept that I've followed for a while about seek to understand before being understood. Right. And um, if you're results oriented, most of us are pretty competitive. It's quite hard to actually sit back and try and understand someone's uh, view before actually being understood and putting yours across. But it's a uh, it's incredibly important uh, to keep that sort of perspective across. I think the other thing is Matt that I have found that. Even those bosses or leaders that you look at, they may be very reserved and everything and closed off. um, You can actually learn a fair bit from them. I've got one chapter in there called Bad Bosses are Great Bosses. And I passionately believe it because you learn more around what not to do than what to do. So I used to, most of us, when you have a bad boss, you do everything you can to get out. You think, okay, can I get into another department? Can I go to another company, another country, do whatever? I just got to get away from this person. These bad bosses, they're actually, uh, it's a bit of a gift in some ways because you'll look at their behaviors that resonate against you and you think, my God, I'm never going to actually be wanting to do those. You indoctrinate that and grain it within your psyche. And as I said, you learn more around what not to do than what, than what you should be doing. And I've actually found, even though I've been fortunate, I've probably only had about two or three within my career, companies I've worked for have been exceptional leaders, but you will get them, but I've actually learned a hell of a lot from those people, whereas to begin with, I would have just thought, geez, I'm not going to learn anything on this front. And it's the same around when someone tells you off and you get a grilling, there's always context behind that grilling, regardless if the content is right why are they getting so pissed off at me? (laughs) What have I done wrong? Is there something, you know, I must be doing is my relationship skills not there. Um, So there's always insight that comes out, even if it hurts to take a growing.
0: Yeah, Uh, what the growing picture of what I would take away from this book, when I finally actually get the book to read it, uh, is going to be uh, the value of mistakes, because I think uh, you, you've you hit on that in one way or another, uh, that we learn more from our mistakes and more, we learn more from other people's mistakes uh, than often we do from the things that we do right and from what other people do right. So that, that to me is evolving into the picture of the biggest takeaway from this book. But you wrote this book, I'm assuming uh, to share your insights. I know I read something where you, you were very humble about people, uh, asking you to share your insights on this, but the purpose of reading this book was to help people, uh, understand some lessons that you learned now in writing the book. I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons, uh, just in the process of writing the book. Can you share some of the things that you learned from the process of writing the book?
2: Yeah, I, I started life in uh advertising in London. It was back in the nineteen nineties. And I was a, I was a copywriter, I was a useless copywriter. Um that's not good promotion for the book, obviously, but uh I was quickly moved on to look after account management. But I love the power of storytelling. And I've you know, my sort I've done the big Mars Global sort of brand roles and, you know, the marketing sort of head roles and et cetera. Um And I've always admired good storytellers. And a good storyteller and a good creative gets across a really important message. So, you know, I decided probably probably around 17, 18 months ago, take a complete change, get out of the corporate world. I may go back within it, uh, the bad corporate world. But one of the elements I thought, okay, let's uh, start to sort of try and get some of these insights across. And to begin with, I actually only wrote this for my kids um every single day at work you try and unlock and untap potential and coach and mentor your kids never listen to you do they so i thought god i better write something down for them you know when i'm not around they actually look back and then uh i suddenly sort of got into the publishing world with wiley and they said yeah we'll uh we'll jump on the back of this so it's been a good experience it was different It wasn't as hard as I thought. And the reason I think it's not hard, wasn't as hard as I thought, I've been very authentic in the book. And I don't mind at my stage of my career, and I'm 51 now, I don't mind showing vulnerability, showing my mistakes, because I'm actually reasonably proud of them. I've done okay. I'm not exceptional within that, but I feel good at what I've done. I've enjoyed the process. And if I can actually help someone through these practical lessons and insights and models and frameworks just be that much better, it's it's not a bad feeling. So I'm never going to save the world, um, but I reckon if I can make people a little bit more effective in life easier um, through some practical stuff, not just theoretical, um, I don't think it can be a bad thing. And hopefully my kids will read it properly one day. They say they have, but you can never trust your kids fully, can you?
0: <laughs> That's an in- interesting answer on a lot of levels. But the, what I'm really interested in that answer is this idea of legacy might be too big a word, but maybe not. Uh, and And your perspective on – my perspective is that good leaders are really powerful, effective leaders – have an idea, an eye towards legacy from a very early age. And maybe I'm I'm misled in that opinion. But uh, it just seems to me that legacy and people who are not... Uh, necessarily all all that effective in a leadership position are never really considered legacy. So uh, am I, uh, do you think I'm correct? And from your perspective in, especially in interviewing these 17 powerful people and people who have been effective leaders and your experience with some uh, effective leaders, do you think legacy is an important concept to, to consider uh, when you're, when you're being in a leader, leadership position?
2: Yeah, I, I I do think so. Um, I think majority of people, when you take a break from that sort of uh, business sort of sense, you look back, and uh, very few people will talk around a legacy in regard to numbers on a spreadsheet. Um, they won't talk around the balance sheet, the P and L, etc. They'll talk around on the difference they've made within people, planets, uh, whatever that whatever that sort of element is. So. I think when you get to the that stage of your career that you realize it's a bigger purpose than yourself i think that's the importance of it i'd like to think most people realize that earlier than later um there are numerous studies that normally happens in around sort of your 40s onwards uh of there's the saying that i absolutely loved uh and i first heard it from a chap grant reed from mars inc and he's uh, amazing the, the head of mars at the moment and he talks around the saying called performance without purpose is meaningless, but purpose without performance is impossible. And I absolutely love that because it essentially states that if you perform well and you get the results, et cetera, incredibly successful, but you haven't got a purpose or a legacy behind it, it doesn't really matter. You're not (laughs) making a difference. But likewise, and I'm part of, uh, I'm a board director of one of Australia's leading mental health and suicide prevention agencies, which I'm pretty passionate around. But they've got an amazing purpose. But to be their very best and get maximum reach and penetration, they have to be very commercial and performance oriented. So it's a really nice sort of balance. And I think the best leaders realize that performance and purpose, um, you have to deliver that. Not everyone gets the energy and buzz from it. That's okay. I think uh, most people want to leave a legacy, though of some sort um i think that's pretty important to them
0: it's a it's an interesting thing because i ask people about it a lot and find out that a lot of creative people don't consciously consider uh what they're like you know especially the younger you are and maybe because creatives are not necessarily uh but there is a, a whole other discussion about uh the the balance between creative mind and business mind and all that stuff but sometimes creatives uh, don't end up being the best leaders in business uh for for that reason that they are not necessarily the same type of uh what makes them tick is not the same thing as other people but you talk about purpose and i think one of i, I maybe i'm wrong in this and maybe you disagree in this but i think um Purpose in a lot of people in their lives is, or lack of purpose is what makes people uh, really miserable. They end up in a job. Now, they may be productive in that job or career, but they end up in a job or career they hate because it doesn't fill them with any sense of purpose. And why am I here? What am I doing this for? But they can still be productive. So, that idea of performance without purpose they can still be productive people but they will be miserable people if they don't have some sense of purpose to what they're doing do you agree
2: yeah wholeheartedly um life's too short to be miserable that's uh without doubt and i do realize that a lot of people don't have choices um there's a group uh matt you may have heard uh center for creative leadership it's in colorado and it's uh you know, obviously beautiful surroundings but um A lot of big corporate programs go there. And one of the, they had a great model, a chap called Nick Petrie. And he talked around a three circles model. Um, And I've incorporated within the book, but it talks around first circle, what are you talented at? Okay. And you've got to be pretty honest. Don't be overinflated because, you know, we're crap at certain things. I was a bad copywriter, but there are certain things I'm actually quite good at. But then equally in the other circle there is, what are your passions and what are your values? And the third circle is around essentially your job. They talk about society or organisational needs, but your job. And the intersection is where you're working on stuff that you're talented at, you're incredibly passionate and they meet your values. And then your job is like a marriage made in heaven. And over time, how do you build that inner circle not to be doing the stuff that, yeah, you may be productive, but you've got no passion or anything with? Now, I do realise it's a model. And it's easy to actually uh, easy to actually state on a three-circle sort of element, and it's hard to do. But I believe if you can get ahead of that curve, try and lead yourself as opposed to manage change, push yourself in regard to striving forward, set yourself a development plan to reach that, I think it is possible. And I'm a big believer in trying to control your agenda, get ahead of the curve, fix before broken, that type of concept, and if you can do that, um, hopefully the miserable days are going to be a a little bit less, but if you work in something that is purposeful, you're making a difference, um, it's a pretty cool environment, you know, you obviously clearly love love what you do within that, and there are some industries you just would not even consider going back into, even though you're probably bloody good at them.
0: Yeah, uh, I I've often said like uh, I find myself complaining about little things, and I'm like, why am I complaining? I, I have the least to complain about, but anybody on on the planet, life is really good. I mean, most people would die to have the situation that i have and what i'm doing something i really truly enjoy doing and never ever have to feel like i'm working at anything everything feels like play everything feels like i'm learning and growing as a person and uh so it's really fulfilling so i i have no right to complain about anything ever uh we are coming out of time now uh i want to show the book again and uh it's not really just a pure business book though this is in a lot of ways is a uh self-improvement, self-help type of book. I know that's a, a, a overdone label, but uh, it's not just for business, right?
2: No, listen, it's uh, all the concepts. I think they're, uh, they're as interrelated as possible. And it is true within that. And uh, I'm always a believer that you should be exactly the same person you are at home as you are at work. It's too tiring otherwise. You know, it's disingenuous itself, but this idea of 100% authenticity, I think it is keen you're going to be happier. So, concepts for business, for personal, they are interrelated as well. And uh, as I said right at the start, uh, I think the person who tells me this uh, most of the time, it's not always right to be right, is my wife and my kids. So, uh, and they're not normally wrong
0: yeah i don't i don't know if i am i have to you know, introspection is the key to all this stuff but i have to look at myself and, and and ask myself am i the same person away from from the microphone that i'm i don't i think my wife would say no i'm not i think she, <laughs> she she'd be the first one to say no you're a, a completely different person because i'm generally shy and uh quiet when, uh, when i'm not in front of a microphone but in front of a microphone i don't have any problems speaking for some reason but i appreciate your time here now i want to say the the link is in the description here and this is wh- where i'm a little confused It's hamish r thompson it's in the, it's going across the bottom there usually dot com now usually people in australia have a dot com slash a u I know.
2: Listen, this is a uh, it's a global one within that. I think half my clients and everything are still within the US as well. So so uh, I'm
0: confused though. So if you can do, I always thought it was like mandatory. If you were down there, you have to have a .au. So why why do people actually choose that just to show the national pride or something? Because if you can have a .com without the .au, I think that would be simpler for people. (laughs) I don't have a USA slash after that i always thought it was mandatory or something it's not it's just people choose to do that au thing
2: well, listen, I said I'm from New Zealand, so I don't want to badmouth the Australians. But uh, I'm, sure got, I'm sure they've got their reasons, but uh, I don't have them.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you've been to the United States long enough to know that we can't tell the difference between <laughs> New Zealand and Australia. <laughs> uh, one, thing, one thing I did notice, the accent can be a little different. I had, hadn't noticed it in your speech here tonight, but I've talked to people from New Zealand who uh, have long, longer E's, uh, websites.
2: <laughs> down, the, uh, down the South uh, South Island so New Zealand's got three islands but two main ones and the, the south is drawn out down below I was born and raised down there but uh, moved up north within that but uh, we're not as complex as you guys with uh, the multiple sort of states and all but that's what makes uh, America so fascinating uh, yeah, yeah. different perspectives, different accents New York to Boston, even that alone, few hours but uh, gee, it
0: sounds different right well i do appreciate your time here i hope people will check out the book and i plan on reading the book uh when my my pile over there gets just a little bit shorter uh, a lot of authors lately so i have a lot of books to read but i plan on reading it. i i value your insight i appreciate your time here and i wish you great success and uh please you know don't don't uh, feel like uh, you can't come back the door's always open to you if you want to uh come back and further this discussion or talk about anything new that you have coming up uh so I appreciate everything and uh until we meet again. Bye for now. Thank you very much, Matt. Stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Bye for now. much Thompson, folks. And the book is it's not always right. It's not always always right to be right. I have a difficult time saying that. It's 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 an easy enough uh wording. I don't know, it just doesn't flow off my lips too too well. It's not always right to be right. Uh important concept and again my biggest takeaway from this is, is this idea of learning uh, learning from your mistakes learning from other people's mistakes can be a really really powerful uh teacher to all of us M- sometimes uh we learn more from from the things that go wrong than the things that go right that's my biggest takeaway from it and the other part of it, i guess is really um honest introspection is important in all this stuff uh, we are afraid to look too deeply into the mirror uh sometimes and and really be honest with ourselves about who we are what our strengths are and what our shortcomings are i heard him say a couple of times he wasn't a great copywriter it, it takes take some honest introspection to look at yourself and admit where your weaknesses are and where uh where your strengths are so that's my takeaway love to hear you uh, and your comments on it info at info at no shows tomorrow because i'll be out playing with the band and you know loving what i do there as well uh so we'll be back with you uh monday until then i'm matt napple for the mind dog tv podcast have a great rest of your night weekend all of it and i'll see you monday bye for now
1: Listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.